Welcome to Global Dispatches, a podcast for the foreign policy and global development communities and anyone who wants a deeper understanding of what is driving events in the world today. I'm your host, Mark Leon Goldberg, editor of UN Dispatch. Enjoy the show. Today's episode was recorded live in front of a virtual audience and produced in partnership with CGIAR, the world's largest agricultural innovation network. The podcast has partnered with CGIAR for a special series that examines the relationship between climate and security. And in today's episode, we explore how Africa is experiencing and approaching the climate security nexus. In particular, how institutions in Africa and beyond are responding to climate security crises. The episode kicks off with some introductory remarks from Harold Roy McCauley, Regional Director, East and Southern Africa, 1CGIAR, and Director General of the Africa Rice Center. I then moderate a panel discussion followed by questions from the audience. To participate in a future live taping as part of this series, please visit climatesecurity.cgiar.org. And now here is Harold Roy McCauley with some introductory remarks. It is quite clear now that climate is linked to conflict. It acts as a multiplier and increases the threat of crisis and instability. There is, however, no robust and crucial localized evidence on the exact mechanisms through which climates can amplify conflicts, whereas there is need to inform responsive policy and programming. This challenge is notable since climate and security and the links between them are complex, multidimensional, and highly context-specific. It is even more important in Africa, which is facing more than other continents the double burden of high climate exposure and conflicts. In 2020, floods, cyclones, and droughts triggered a record 4.3 million new displacements in sub-Saharan Africa only, whereas the number of undernourished people in drought-sensitive countries across the region has increased by approximately 46% in, since 2012. Similarly, in 2019, the number of armed conflicts in Africa reached a peak high. 25 state-based conflicts were recorded, several of which were related to the rise and expansion of the Islamic State. Relevant climate and conflict connections are increasingly observable across the African continent. And there is a plethora of evidence suggesting that climate has exacerbated already existing conflict dynamics or even created new ones, especially at the local level. For instance, in conflict affected countries like Mali and Somalia, climate impacts are hindering peace building efforts by increasing grievances against already strained institutions, spurring tensions and conflicts over dwindling resources and forcing young people to join extremist groups to overcome poverty and secure livelihood. 
Moreover, over the years, farmers had a conflict, especially in the Sahel and on Horn of Africa, have intensified due to changing climate and competition over access and use of natural resources has led to increased hostility and intergroup violence. International, regional, and national organizations and policymakers are increasingly acknowledging the implications of climate on peace and security. This, however, is not enough, and urgent action is needed. The African Union Peace and Security Council has recently released an unprecedented communique calling for immediate action to mitigate the climate security nexus in Africa, including the development of an AU special fund for climate change. Shortly after the release of this communique, leaders from many African countries, such as Nigeria, South Africa, the Democratic Republic of Congo, Gabon, and Kenya, joined the US President Joe Biden in the Leaders' Summit in the spring of 2021 to discuss how to respond to the global security challenges posed by climate change. This reflects what we see daily in many African communities and villages, where the impacts of increasing temperature, rising sea levels, coastal erosion, extreme events such as tropical cyclones, longer and more devastating droughts, together with the insurgence of grievances, tensions, riots, protests, and wars, are increasingly exacerbating food and nutrition insecurity, making people poorer, more malnourished, and ultimately more insecure. Climate increasingly plays a role in influencing social constructs, thus putting people, groups, communities against each other. As researchers and decision makers, we have a moral obligation to stop this, and very quickly. The challenge is, how do we contribute to this ever so needed change? In other words, how do we break the cycle of increasing climate impacts, fragility, and increasing tensions and conflicts because of climate impacts? Now more than ever, quick responses and timely decisions are needed. And these decisions require robust, solid, validated evidence and data that can inform, influence, and direct decision makers to act fast and to help people in need. But very often, the times of research and evidence building are not aligned with the times of policy decisions. This makes real difference for the many that are impacted by compound risks in Africa. CGIR is currently working to fill this gap. The Climate Security Crisis Observatory aims to qualify and quantify the climate security nexus across the continent and provide real-time data and support to decisions. It directly aims to respond to demands for evidence rapidly and in real time, keeping pace to the shifting nature of the links between conflict and climate. More specifically, using a combination of state-of-the-art quantitative and quantitative research and qualitative research methods and leveraging 
the whole CGIR, Science on Land, Water and Food Systems, the observatory will provide real or almost real-time scientific evidence on how climate exacerbates existing socio-economic and political risks and insecurities, including the potential for conflict. The observatory will support decisions regarding the where, who, and the what we should do to address climate security risks. More specifically, where the most vulnerable areas to climate-induced insecurities and risks are, where, who are the most vulnerable groups to climate and security risks that should be prioritized to ensure stability and peace in a climate crisis, the who, what is the ideal package of interventions that policymakers should implement to break the cycle between climate and conflict, the what. We believe that the evidence that the observatory will produce is of crucial importance to overcome siloed solutions and move towards integrated approaches that maximize synergies between adaptation, resilience, and peace. However, robust analytics and science products are not enough to inform decisions. One of the objectives of today's discussion is to explore and develop ways this observatory can be used and operationalized to support decision-making. Welcome, everyone. My name is Mark Leon Goldberg. I am the editor of UN Dispatch and host of the Global Dispatches podcast. And today's conversation is being recorded as a live taping of the podcast. Harold Roy McCauley did a great job of framing this conversation, and I have the honor of moderating an excellent panel, which I will now introduce. Dr. Ana Maria Lobo Guerrero is Research Director for Climate Action at the Alliance of Bioversity International and CIAT, and Head of the Global Policy Research at the CGIAR Research Program on Climate Change, Agriculture, and Food Security. Welcome. Arif Hussein is Chief Economist and Director of Research Assessments and Monitoring at the World Food Program. Welcome. Thank you. Sophie Desmet is a Policy Officer at the Security and Resilience Program at the European Center for Development Policy Management. Welcome. Thank you. Hana Minaye is the Focal Person on Climate, Peace and Security and Environmental Sustainability within the Department of Political Affairs, Peace and Security at the African Union Commission. Welcome. Thank you. And the Honorable Mohamed Gulaid is CEO of the Frontier Counties Development Council of Kenya. Uh, a big welcome and thank you thank to you. you all. Uh, so I will have some questions prepared for our esteemed panelists, but I will also be sure to leave time for questions from the audience. To ask a question of the panelists, please simply leave your question in the comment section wherever you are watching the live stream. And we'll get to those shortly at the end of this moderated session. Uh, for now, let us all begin. I am going to kick off with a question to you all. Uh, let me set it up for you first. There is increasingly an acknowledgement that climate is a security concern for Africa. And we can point to a number of hotspots across the continent where this is most acute. For instance, a CGIAR WFP study found that climate drought and high temperatures 
increase food and nutrition insecurity in Ethiopia, and that this is associated with a higher likelihood of conflicts. Another example is the Lake Chad Basin of Nigeria, which has been documented as an example of the climate conflict trap. So Arif Hussein, I'm gonna turn it to you first. In your opinion, what key decisions are needed to mitigate climate security crises? And what is your organization doing to break the cycle between climate and conflict? Um, thanks, Mark. Um, hello, everybody. Um, let me just start by saying that um, we are way past the point of saying that, you know, climate and um, security crisis um, are not real. I mean, it's, uh, we see it in our work as World Food Program day in, day out, that this is a vicious cocktail which affect people not only in, uh, in Africa, but also in Middle East and, uh, and elsewhere. Um, when people ask me, I mean, you know, what can be done about this? For me, first and foremost, we need to get the problem statement right, meaning what is happening out there, it's not enough to just say that there is a problem, but to, to actually know why there is a problem, uh, where it is, how many people are affected, uh, like Carol was saying, what can be done about that? And that has to be done wherever it is happening, right? So it's not a really small problem. And at the same time, it is time sensitive. If you get into a situation which is already exploded, Frankly, it's too late. You can save lives, but changing lives is going to take a lot longer. So for us, it is a matter of getting the right information so right type of programs could be designed and also getting it as quickly as possible is critically important. And because of this, what we have done is to have partnerships like institutions like CGIR uh, where, you know, we are working with them on the, the climate and security uh, crisis observatory, which Harold mentioned. And the idea is to, to get the problem statement, which we have, which we see around the world, and connect it to solutions, but all in real time. So what happens is that when we bring in this information and we start to make uh, decisions on the basis of that, we can have early action to save lives and, frankly, more so to change lives. Uh, thank you. Thank you so much, Arif. Uh, Ana Maria Lobo Guerrero, I am going to turn to you next. Uh, in your opinion, what key decisions are needed to mitigate climate security crises and what is your organization doing to break the cycle between climate and conflict? Thank you. Thank you very much, Mark, for that question. And um, I'm going to uh, repeat a little bit what Harold started mentioning in terms of these key decisions that are needed. And, and, and I think that this is good news because it says that in the CGR we are, uh, we are totally aligned. But we really believe that addressing the if is climate a threat multiplier? But not only that, because it was mentioned that we know that it is a threat multiplier, but it's really understanding the pathways by which climate can become a threat multiplier. So that's a key decision, really 
being able to generate information that addresses that um, that 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 mechanism by which climate can expand risks. But then the where where are the hotspots of these climate security issues happening? We need to prioritize. We need to target. We have limited resources, so we really need strong support decision tools in terms of understanding where we need to start working in terms of tackling this problem. And then the what, Harold mentioning, we, we cannot stop in terms of understanding the mechanisms, we cannot stop in terms of understanding the geographies where we need to work, but we need to understand what do we need to do in terms of uh, reducing these risks in these hotspots. And then we need to understand also the who, as Harold was saying, who are the most vulnerable groups that we need to prioritize. And again, the need for prioritization, it's really, really important. And, and this was the rationale that we had when we started working on this, on developing this uh, climate security observatory. As was mentioned before, the need to have real-time analysis at different scales. It's also very important, regional, national, subnational level to address these important decisions. And just to tell you what we have done so far, addressing the second part of your question. So we have completed the analysis using this observatory in Central America and in Ethiopia. What we would like to do in the following year is to expand this analysis in terms of really um, including qualitative assessments of the types of interventions, of actions that this information is going to uh, to inform, and then being able to co-generate these solutions with a variety of stakeholders engaged with regional, with national stakeholders, in order to really be able to test these solutions. It is very important to be able to test them because that's the way that we learn. And the idea is to do this in Senegal, in Kenya, in Zambia, in Guatemala, and the Philippines. Thank you. Thank you so much, Anna, Anna Maria and uh, Mohamed Glade. I'm going to come to you next. Uh, what key decisions are needed to mitigate climate security crises? And what is your organization, the Frontier Counties Development Council of Kenya, doing to break the cycle between conflict and climate? Yes, th thank you very much. Um, I think this uh, webinar comes at a very uh, crucial uh, and, and timely moment. In Kenya, as we speak right now, we are undergoing a very severe drought, actually almost bordering uh, famine. Um, it was only yesterday our president here in Kenya has uh, declared um, uh, drought now as an emergency. So we are having a state of emergency as far as uh, drought is concerned, and rightfully so because of uh, already conflicts that are being seen uh, in some parts of this country, in a county called Laikipia, Already scores of people have died because of uh, movement of people and livestock into ranches and uh, and uh, and conservancies uh, owned by private people. So one of the challenges that I've realized uh, we face here in Kenya is that it's like as if either our government or policymakers have a very short memory. Um, it's quite obvious that uh, climate change has brought a new form of um, uh, on frequency in, in drought and climate challenges, uh, including floods and other forms of catastrophe around uh, climate change. 
and these have direct uh, relations with security. Uh, and uh, very often, uh, because of climate crisis, uh, the, the frequency is more, uh, I mean, the, the, the occurrence are more frequent. And uh, it's like as if what I realize is uh, any time we are faced by this challenge, uh, we are beginning to again move as if this is the first time it's happening. So no mitigation measures are put in place in advance uh, to make sure that we anticipate this kind of, because it's already clear that every two years uh, we are faced by drought in Kenya, for example. And that means uh, challenges to the livelihood and the lives of people who own livestock. The area I represent, the 10 counties, the livelihoods are predominantly uh, uh, pastoralism and and because of now this drought, a lot of people are moving from their place and going into other areas. And as a result, that causes conflict. Um, we as an organization are putting into place um, various uh, policy measures, uh, several of them actually. One is that we have just drafted uh, a bill, a legislative bill for our county assemblies that will uh, see how we can organize our peace and security management uh, within this region. <clears throat> we have also put into place and passed in some of the counties uh, a legislation on rangeland management. And a number of counties already, uh, the subnational levels here in Kenya, in the northern part of Kenya, have also um, put into place uh, legislation on climate action. Uh, they already have a climate action fund, and a few of the counties, not all of them, we are in the process of making all of them also um, adopt uh, those policies and legislation and also a disaster response uh, mechanism. So from where we sit, these are the avenues through which we support okay. our governors and counties to ensure that they are able to mitigate issues of drought Thank and security. You. Thank you. Thank you so much, uh, Mohammed. Uh, Sophie, let me uh, turn to you to address this question over to you, Sophie. Thanks, Mark. Um, I think sound decisions around climate change and security um, we'll really need to start with a keen understanding of how climate change and security challenges relate to each other in, in a given context. Um, what we see emerging from research regard, uh, related to uh, climate-related security risk is that climate change impacts uh, are incredibly localized, but that they are also filtered by uh, political economy factors within a given context. In many places, there is a range of mechanisms and policies in place that have allowed communities to a certain extent to deal with these negative climate effects, also reflecting a certain level of resilience. But um, across the regions, uh, notably Horn of Africa and Sahel, which were mentioned in the introduction, these have come under increased pressure, not just because of climate change, but also socioeconomic challenges, inequalities, lack of preventive uh, measures, uh, but also uh, political grievances and, and, and violent conflict. And so climate change is not just a security concern, it packs much more, and that needs to be the, the very foundation of making sound decisions. And what ECDPM has tr been trying to do is really to contribute to an understanding of how those linkages look like within a given context, what, what mechanisms and policies can be harnessed to strengthen climate resilience and also how policies can be right-sized to those uh, existing mechanisms in a given context and to actively broker the knowledge to uh, policymakers uh, in the region. 
thank you. Thank you, Sophie. And now, uh, Hannah, over to you. In your opinion, what key decisions are needed to mitigate climate security crises? And what is your organization, the African Union Commission, doing to break the cycle between climate and conflict? Thank you, Mark, and uh, thank you for this opportunity. Um, I think that the background given uh, during the introduction was quite uh, critical and covers the the I would say background of the issue. One uh, key decision, of course, is to steadfastly remain committed to climate action at every level, but particularly at the national level. For the African Union Commission, pursuing multilateral cooperation is important to enhance the Commission's actions on climate security reporting, risk-informed planning, and uh, response capacity. Um, the African Union Commission remains committed to strengthening its institutional capacity as well as that of member states to bolster climate action uh, in re disaster risk reduction, uh, areas uh, concerning resilience, adaptation and mitigation, food security, and other humanitarian and development efforts. Uh, and surely, of course, dedicated financing on climate change as well as peace and security are critical to tackling climate security crises. Thank you. Uh, thank you. Thank you all for those uh, excellent framing answers to the rest of our conversation. I now have individualized questions, and I am going to turn to uh, Arif Hussein of the World Food Program. Uh, Arif, as chief economist and head of the research assessment and monitoring team at WFP, I just have to imagine that you are confronted daily with the challenge of providing timely and accurate evidence to inform humanitarian and development interventions in often very fragile contexts. So in your experience, what are the main challenges in delivering research and evidence that responds to WFP's needs? And how can evidence and data on climate security help WFP's operations in Africa? Thanks, Mark. Thanks, Mark. Um, let me just start by saying that um, there, is, there is a lot of information in the, in the world, but there is not enough knowledge. What I mean by that is that you have the biggest challenge probably right now is that you have all of this information, but it is in different silos. So there's food security information, there's nutrition information, there's climate information, there's conflict information, there's markets information but it doesn't talk to each other. And it doesn't talk to each other in real time. So anything which can be done using technology to bring these different streams of information into turning it into knowledge, which then decision makers can use to design programs, implement policy, all of that. I think that's something which is uh, which is significant and which needs to be addressed. It's not that it's not being done, it is being done, but there's a long way to go. Okay. The second thing to me is how do we take our analytical information and convert it into a language which politicians understand? Because there is a disconnect between researchers how they talk, and practitioners, how they talk, and politicians, how they talk. Can we have a common language? That's a, that's a big challenge. And for me, the third one, which, which, is, uh, which, is, uh, which is important is, 
we always talk about cost of doing something. The first thing you ask is, okay, so how much is this going to cost? Why don't we turn that question around and say, what is the cost of not doing something? What is the cost of inaction? Because in this climate security crisis, the cost of inaction is huge. And if we want to mitigate that, if we want to reduce that, then we better be paying attention to the things, the types of things we're talking about right now in terms of getting the analysis right and in terms of getting the interventions right so people don't have to resort to those types of means. Uh, thank you. Thank you, Arif. And it's always helpful to hear an economist frame questions, not by cost of action, but also by costs of, of inaction to expand our understanding of total costs involved in efforts like this. So, so thank you. Uh, Ana Maria Lobo Guerrero, I'm going to turn to you now. Uh, very little is known on the role climate plays as a threat multiplier and how its impact on peace and security can affect efforts to improve resilience in many African countries. So how do you think we can change the way we do climate research and programming to address implications for peace and security, specifically for Africa, and why, in your opinion, is doing so important? Thank you very much, Mark, for that question. So um, let me respond by considering two main things. The first one, it's in general what we have learned from the, from the research program of climate change, agriculture, and food security on how if we really want to generate impact, we need to do research in a different way. And this implies thinking about three main dimensions in order to uh, do this research for development. Really understanding needs, doing good research, and then enhancing capacity. And therefore, what we have been trying to do through the generation of the knowledge in this research program is to the resources that we have to invest them in three thirds. So one third of resources, it's really needs to go to work with next users. So in, in, in this case, policymaker, policymakers at different scales that are going to be using this information to, uh, to, to provide good uh, recommendations. So it's doing this research. So thinking about these research questions, for instance, in terms of these linkages between climate and security, uh, with the next users, with the ones that are going to be benefiting from this information. So from the very beginning, understanding the needs in terms of research. Then, of course, we need to devote resources to do research, good research, robust research, solid research. And then we need to uh, spend one third of these resources in really being able to enhance the capacity of next users so that they can update this research. because. If that, this is not the case, then nothing is going to happen with that research. So that's one main thing to consider. The second one is that we really need to provide information that can adjust climate adaptation programming and finance considering these climate security nexus. And just let me give you an example of a really nice opinion piece that will be launched in the following weeks. It's one that uh, Peter Laderach was leading with colleagues and he does something really interesting, and it's he puts together information in relation to adaptation potential, adaptation to climate change, and then he combined this with the Global Peace Index. And by doing this analysis, he's able to demonstrate that most of the tropical developing world experience a combination of peace building and adaptation challenges. In other words, most of the tropical developing world is both 
climate exposed and vulnerable and fragile due to insecurity and conflict. But if this is the case, and this is what it's really interesting about this opinion piece, is that what is happening is that often fragile states are not priorities by climate funds. So we somehow are seeing a contradiction in relation to this. And this is an opportunity that we are losing in terms of making good use of these resources. So it's really providing information that so that we can modify the way that these uh, funds are being allocated so that these, they consider this linkage between climate and security. Thank you. Uh, thank you, Ana Maria. Uh, Mohamed Guled, uh, over to you. Uh, the Frontier Counties Development Council, the FCDC, brings together counties in Kenya's northern frontier of Garissa, Isiolo, Lamu, Mandera, Marsabit, Tana River, and Wajir that have for a long time been economically marginalized, are highly fragile, and have suffered instability, poverty, and insecurity. Uh, the county governors of these frontier counties have therefore come together to accelerate the social and economic development of the area, especially in advancing peace and development to harness the potential of this region. So in light of the climate crisis, what are the most important bottlenecks that local policymakers face in preventing and mitigating conflicts in Kenya? And what do you need from the research community to be able to support local communities against the impacts of climate change? Uh, thank you very much. Um, as you've mentioned correctly, our region is one of the most uh, disadvantaged, uh, let me say, that has been underserved in the last uh, 60 years or so since Kenya took independence. And therefore, there is total, you know, almost absence of uh, critical infrastructure. Uh, the region has very poor roads uh, network. We have, uh, you know, very poor connection in electricity. So energy, particularly to the national grid, is absent, almost absent, very small percentage. And uh, access to clean water, uh, schools, uh, healthcare, all of them are, you know, uh, still at a very rudimentary stage. Uh, but um, on, on the bottlenecks with regards to climate change issues and security, one of the biggest problems we have is lack of um, sufficient uh, data that can give you know, proper evidence-based uh, policy-making uh, framework. So, for example, we hear a lot about water that is underground, a lot of uh, aquifers in the northern part of Kenya, but no one really knows um, what the volumes are, how they can be achieved, where they can be, you know, extracted. Uh, therefore, uh, this is one of the biggest challenges we have. But in addition to that, the region, because of its previous uh, level of marginalization, we are faced by, uh, you know, conflict uh, that comes as a result of, for example, conflict over land. Um, uh, you know, people fight over who owns this piece of land. And uh, especially around this time, when we are faced by a drought, it becomes even more precarious. So it becomes worse. Um, another challenge, of course, is right now, you know, the, in Kenya, we have the devolved system of government. Uh, since the year 2013, we have now this subnational level governments called the county governments. Uh, but they are severely underfunded. So to just mitigate on this kind of climate issues is also a major, you know, funding is a major issue. And um, so from the research community, what we'll need is for them to give us support in terms of uh, data management and data collection. We get a periodic, let's say, 
research uh, based approach you know towards giving uh, policymakers the right information that they need uh, such researchers for example the um, they, they could be embedded even with our leadership system at the county level but even within the FCDC where we can have a periodic um, you know reports that can advise and give policymakers international partners our national government sufficient information upon which they can make the right decision at the right time because very often now what we see is that already we are on the onset of drought but it took so long for the government now to declare that we're in a state of emergency this should have been foreseen long time ago the meteorological department had already mentioned so well thank those you are some of the issues. Thank, thank you thank you and, and i must say i i have moderated many of these events and what I, I love is how it brings together local leaders like yourself with the research community. And, and you have just given uh, those watching this event and those participating in this event, a, a research agenda uh, upon which we can take action after this uh, session ends. So thank you. Thank uh, you. Thank Sophie, you. Uh, over to you, your project Cascades assesses the cascading climate risks across different sectors and across different regions. This research has looked at the impact of climate change on livelihoods, migration and security in the central Sahel, as well as future climate change scenarios and policy implications for the region. So building on your experience in this and other similar projects, what type of research and evidence will be needed to inform the regional approaches to peace building and conflict prevention in the coming years? Also, what are some of the main regional actors whose buy-in will be crucial to addressing cascading climate and security risks? Thank you, Mark. Um, where I think research plays an important role is really in identifying uh, possible contradictions and inconsistencies, and by consequence also uh, options to improve connections between policies and, and initiatives that try to address uh, linkages between climate change and, and conflict. And in this way, we can identify possible negative unintended consequences of policies which could in undermine uh, interventions uh, to strengthen uh, climate security. Um, the peace and African peace and security um, architecture, for example, packs a lot of a uh, variety of actors and regional bodies, but also involves international partners who support and fund it, and a, and a range of instruments ranging from early warning to mediation over governance support and security measures. And I think what regional policymakers are looking for is really evidence on how climate change can be expected to have an effect across different sectors and what responses will be needed from those different uh, sectors and through different tools, uh, such as humanitarian aid, food security, climate adaptation measures, uh, security, but also support to, for example, uh, political governance and, and um, decentralization processes, for example. And we see a growing realization within regional bodies and also international organizations that these issues are connected, but there are challenges institutionally sometimes. I mean, uh, silos between departments, lack of time and capacity to conduct in-depth analysis, to have the analysis in real time. Uh, and in one recent interview, uh, one representative from a regional body in the Sahel said, 
uh, we were building climate adaptation capacity in a, in a border region in the Sahel, and that community was attacked by armed groups, and now they're displaced, and we're looking at a completely different situation. And so moving uh, the initiatives from one sector to another and combining all of those elements is a real challenge for, for regional policymakers. Um, and um, I have to say, in our research, we haven't come across any regional body that is not sensitive to the issue. There's just a difference in how they, in how they address it. Um, not many make a direct link, for example, as the African Union does. But I think for partnerships uh, to be uh, effective, I think it will be important to identify the comparative roles that regional bodies can play vis-à-vis uh, -vis this issue. Um, in the Sahel, for example, you have ECOWAS with a broad regional mandate connecting the Sahel with coastal states, giving a bird's eye perspective on how countries are affected in the Sahel, but also in the coast. There's others, Liptakogurma Authority, that focus on border areas. Uh, others are focused on river basins, such as the Niger Basin Authority, which provides an entry point to look at water security issues. And so I think it will be really important to connect the dots between those regional organizations and identify comparative roles and advantages Thank to you. Make, uh, effective partnerships. Uh, thank you. And and uh, Sophie, I am glad that you referenced the direct link that the African Union has made between climate and security, uh, because HANA, it is, if I'm not correct, one of the first organizations, if not the only one that has formally recognized that link, and it did so in a March 2021 communique. Uh, so to that end, can you tell us more about how this has changed the work that the AU does on climate and conflict and how an Africa Climate Security Observatory could support this process? Also, the African Union Commission has set up the Continental Early Warning System. Uh, what do you think the Clim Africa Climate Security Observatory can add to these existing systems and, and how? Sure. Um, thank you, Mark. Uh, just for reference for the audience, that is the 984th uh, communique uh, session of the Peace and Security Council um, uh, on March 9th. For anyone who would like to reference that, uh, the March 9 PSC communique now guides us uh, as the Departments of Political Affairs and Peace and Security and more broadly the African Union Commission, including various departments, to investigate, investigate the relationship between climate fragility and insecurity and understand the role of the AU as a continental player and how to marry that with efforts at the regional level to provide the best support at the member state level. Um, the Department of Political Affairs, uh, Peace and Security has a wealth of existing environmental security precedents to pursue now, including the interventions undertaken by the department to highlight key areas of peace building and conflict prevention. This includes, for example, the mediation of natural resource-based conflicts um, tackling transhumans-related violence, as well as other outcomes and decisions that involve intercommunal violence related to natural resource sharing. Um, now we have directives allowing us to mainstream climate and environmental issues into peace and security programming, and of course also to pursue avenues to ensure conflict-sensitive programming in other departments of the AUC, namely the Department of Agriculture, Rural Development, Blue Economy, and Sustainable Environments, which hosts the mandate of climate change. So um, in order to do that better, actually, we've just um, established a technical level um, interdepartmental uh, uh, coordination platform called the Climate and Security Cluster that brings together focal persons at the technical level in order for us to begin investigating the best ways for us to um, in integrate these uh, key issues within each other's programming, which in the, the, the department's programming. 
So in terms of silos, we're tr we're trying to bust the silo issue in that way. Um, Thank you. I'm running out of time. Thank so you. It, okay. Thanks. Well, we'll 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 have. Uh, I I do want to make sure that we do leave plenty of time for questions from the audience. So sure. as a reminder, uh, please leave your question in the comment field of wherever you are watching this live stream. I have one final round of questions. We're gonna make this a lightning round. So we have plenty of time for audience questions. I'm gonna give the panelists one minute each to answer this question. And I'm gonna be strict because I do wanna to get to our audience questions. Uh, so Arif, uh, to you, how can the Africa Climate Security Observatory be used to both prevent conflict and or support post-conflict recovery, and what more is needed for the observatory to meet its full potential? I think that the most important part is to get this going and in as many places as possible, as soon as possible. Because evidence and data that is required not only to target people who need assistance. I mean, imagine a world where millions upon millions people need assistance. And within that, some people need a whole lot more assistance. So how do we go about doing that, particularly those affected by conflict and, and by climate and both? So, okay. so, so that to me is probably the, the most important thing, getting out there, doing the real-time analysis, getting the information back to decision makers and continuing to do that. Because remember, food security and nutrition is not a static concept. If you're hungry, if you're not hungry today, you may be hungry tomorrow. And especially you. if you're in trouble, that's even more important. Uh, thank you. Uh, and Anna Maria, over to you. How can the Clim Africa Climate Security, uh, Security Observatory be used both to prevent conflict and or support post-conflict recovery? And what more is needed for the observatory to meet its full potential? So, so, so the good thing about this um, tool is that it brings together two topics that often have been treated separately. So this needs to continue to happen. We need to bring climate and conflict evidence into a one single decision support tool. So, and that's what we are trying to do with this climate security observatory. And the idea is that by bringing these two communities uh, together, we can optimize climate and conflict investment. And that related to my previous question and my previous answer, which is we need to change and we need to use this climate security observatory to be able to optimize how do we use the resources to address this issue. And then the other thing that the, the uh, observatory needs to do, which is really important, it's to contribute to the process of evaluation and generation of information. So we need to understand those, those decisions that, these, uh, that this climate security observatory is triggering. We need to start evaluating that. And something, something very relevant, it's combining this quantitative and qualitative assessment. And this includes interacting with the stakeholders that are going to be using this information. Thank you. Thank you very much. Uh, Mohamed Guled, over to you. Yes, thank you. I, I think um, so far the conversation around climate change uh, and um, issues of security uh, appears to me a very elitist, you know, uh, concept. Uh, and remember, most of the climate change factors are caused by uh, man-made actions and uh, often by communities that are, you know, down in our villages who may not even understand what we talk about. So what I think is that um, we could do 
is to find a way of linking uh, both to making people understand about the dangers of, for example, cutting trees, preventing, you know, issues that can raise to lead to climate change uh, in a very understandable in a language that they can understand. Number two, I think the other challenge we have is that there are so much resources uh, being floated around, particularly in this part of the world. But as uh, Arif said earlier on, they hardly talk to each other. So there's no much interlinkages to really you know, maximize on the benefits and uh, value of the funds that we have. Thank you. Uh, thank you. And Sophie, to you. Thanks, Mark. I'll, I'll be very short. I think a tool um, like Climate Observatory could be incredibly useful to provide red flags before a conflict. Uh, it's not always easy to predict them, but I think sensitizing people early on about potential outbreaks is, is, is going to be incredibly useful, but also to provide lessons learned afterwards about interventions and how you know these interventions have been successful or not uh, in a given context. And I think a couple of key ingredients that I would mention is really to embed it in ongoing processes around development of data and evidence, but also gather, uh, developing a participatory approach to the data gathering and sharing of data to those uh, communities that could make use of it. Uh, and finally, also adopting a, a cross-sectoral uh, approach to climate adaptation and, uh, and resilience and the data around it. Thank you. All right, Hannah, uh, last question for you before we open it up to the audience. Go for it. Um, sure, thank you. Um, I believe we need a process uh, for refining the indicators of the nexus within our early warning systems, as well as within our structural conflict prevention um, mechanisms. From the continental level, I believe uh, this will um, uh, support from the Africa Climate uh, Observatory will allow us to maximize our effectiveness through avoiding overly generalized approaches, um, because we need better information on local level context that are central to the nexus of climate change, peace and security, as well as where possible enhanced long and short-term predictive capacities in, the, in line with climate projections. Uh, this is critical for enhanced risk-informed planning uh, that really joins multi-hazard early warning methodologies and capacities with those of conflict early warning. Thank you. Thank you, thank you very much. I am now going to turn over the mic and camera to Reese Bucknell-Williams of CGIAR who has been monitoring the question and comment feed. Uh, Reese, over to you. Hi everybody, yes, lots of chat on the uh, on the live stream, lots of questions coming in from the audience. Um, so I'm just going to, uh, I think, fire some questions at certain members of the panel. Um, so I think my first question maybe is to Mohammed, if that's okay. So the UN Food, we obviously have two major events coming up uh, in the coming months, focused on food systems and climate change. Um, now the food systems has the, has the kind of tagline of the People Summit, um, but has sort of sometimes come, in, uh, come under criticism for perhaps not being as participatory as possible. Uh, the COP has also faced slightly similar uh, accusations because obviously the difficulties around COVID and travel. So um, so my question is really, you know, is the People Summit, you know, are the voice of sort of, of, of people from across Africa being heard uh, in these international dialogues about policy uh, and about strengthening resilience? Yeah, I think uh, we, I personally, I participated in the, in the food system summit from the beginning, uh, when they went to the uh, the national uh, dialogue, uh, our organization jointly with a number of civic uh, organizations, uh, civil society, uh, together with the United Nations, we undertook a process of dialogue which involved participants from across the country, uh, and has been widely publicized. I think 
I, I think I'm satisfied that it was uh, fairly uh, participatory. Uh, and I'm sure it maybe it comes down also to the point I raised earlier on, whether we whether we are really reaching down people at the grassroots who don't uh, either communicate in the language that is understood internationally, whether that part of participation has been, you know, taken on board. Uh, but otherwise, at the level of organizations, uh, institutions and government, I think there was a wide uh, participation. Oh, fantastic. Thank you, Mohammed. Um, my next question, perhaps I might uh, target at Anna Maria, if that's possible. So just uh, we're just mentioning, obviously, the Food System Summit and COP26. You know, uh, these are two obviously big, important opportunities for action and commitment. You know, how can we link the two together? Like, is there some kind of way that we can thematically bring them together? Like, or is there something missing? We certainly need to to, to link this together. Uh, and, and again, I was talking, I was mentioning many times, um, not losing opportunities. And this is an opportunity that definitely we cannot lose. So um, the Food System Summit, I think it has a um, lot of conversations in relation to the need to include um, climate into the equation for these sustainable food systems. Uh, we need to innovate in order to really address this climate challenge. We need to think seriously about innovation, thinking about people, thinking about nature, thinking about the climate. And the security piece, it's a fundamental uh, component of thinking about how we innovate to address the challenge. And therefore, uh, if we don't uh, use this opportunity to bring this conversation about the linkages between climate, agriculture and security to the COP26, we are going to be losing a huge opportunity to make a change because we are not going to be able to build systemic resilience against climate if we don't consider these linkages between climate, uh, security and peace. Thank you, Anna Maria. Um, I was just actually reading uh, in the uh, Reuters recently about how um, countries like Madagascar is facing what some say is the kind of the world's first climate change famine. And maybe um, Arif might be best placed to answer this. But you know, how how do we how should the international community can respond to such kind of emerging crises? I think um, good question. I mean, uh, Madagascar very close to my heart because if you look at places where we have been talking about famines, um, mostly they are they are conflict-driven, right? So if you look at South Sudan, if you look at Yemen, if you look at Burkina Faso, if you look at Northeast Nigeria, uh, Madagascar is the only place where it is not linked to conflict and it is purely a consequence of climate change. But the big part there is that those people over there did nothing to create this problem. Mm. But when the problem was created, nobody is getting up there to help these people who are, frankly, I mean, if you're calling it a famine, which it is, you know, people are dying. We don't declare a famine until people have actually died because of that. So the responsibility, the onus, and this is why in my earlier talk, I was saying, you know what? You always talk about cost of action, what about cost of inaction? And these are innocent lives who had nothing to do with climate change, but they are being lost and they're paying for somebody else's, other people's um, issues. Thank you, Arif. Um, 
So I think the next question, um, kind of, I think, well, Hannah spoke uh, very eloquently about the role of sort of the African Union in in kind of security and development. Um, but of course, across Africa, there is a kind of, uh, you know, an emergence of lots of new initiatives and organizations. So because obviously around the African continental free trade area and also the regional economic communities who have in the past played quite a big role in you know, in, in mediating regional conflicts. conflicts. I mean, how can these organizations kind of work better together, um, particularly on sort of maybe bringing in climate science and food science into uh, crisis response? And uh, maybe uh, Hannah or Sophie, maybe you want to come on this question. Perhaps Hannah first. Um, thank you. No, it's really critical from the continental level that uh, the work that we do and the perspectives that we have on this issue make sense and are integrated with the regional economic communities. Uh, particularly, as, as Sophie has mentioned, many um, actors have and do work on this issue. They just may not refer to it as the climate security nexus, or but uh, definitely the different moving parts um, are present, for example, with EGAD, um, obviously designed in many ways to address uh, issues of drought and um, and um, disaster risk. And so, uh, I think early warning is uh, is a key first area that we can work to integrate. As we have, um, as Sophie has mentioned, the peace and the APSA, the African Peace and Security Architecture, is designed to have uh, pillars that um, include the regional economic communities as well as the continental early warning system and uh, the regional uh, early warning systems are a key area where we can marry these um, early warning indicators and approach analysis especially jointly on this issue. Yeah, thank you. Fantastic, thank you, Hannah. And perhaps maybe just the final question for Sophie. Then, what what would be the implications then for like Africa's sort of international partners? So, obviously, given the expertise of ECDPM, you know, how perhaps can the European Union or other partners sort of collaborate on these issues? Yes, I think um, of course these regional organizations uh, they don't operate in a vacuum, and they're confronted uh, in many instances with, with a range of support measures by international and also European actors. And um, you know we've seen, for example, with the European Green Deal, that there's an increased attention for how the EU is going to tackle climate security and its ex external action. There's a range of regional programs happening. But what we do hear from conversations with uh, regional um, policymakers is that there is a risk of duplication and sort of um, a shifting focus of attention over time. Um, the Great Green Wall Initiative, for example, has now been relaunched in the Sahel. There's also the Coalition for the Sahel, uh, the Sahel Initiative. So, I mean, regional policymakers at time are a bit frustrated sometimes that there's too many moving parts from international actors as well. So I think um, a good realization of what these different uh, initiatives could bring comparative uh, advantage is needed and also ensuring financial sustainability so that when one program drops or, or, or doesn't receive the attention that it did in the past, that there's no gap for regional actors to then, you know, further implement the, the promising projects that uh, that they're conducting. Thank you, Sophie. Mark uh, O'Hara. Okay. Well, let me uh, just uh, briefly thank our panelists uh, for an excellent conversation. Uh, thank you to those of you who are watching the live stream to access previous episodes that were recorded as part of the podcast's partnership with CGIAR as the Climate Security Series uh, and to access future episodes as well. Uh, please follow Global Dispatches wherever you follow podcasts and we'll see you at the next webinar. 
thank you all. And Harold, over to you to uh, sign us off. Thank you very much. Um, great discussions out there. Um, just a few reminders, though. Uh, most of the African economies and heavily are heavily dependent on natural resources and rain-fed agriculture, making them especially vulnerable to impacts of climate, including increasing temperatures, rainfall, variability, droughts, floods, and more frequent and intense extreme weather events. And this can have serious implications for peace and security, and we've had this. For example, scarcity of water and pasture for livestock induced by droughts and desertification can force pastoral communities to deviate from the usual migratory routes. This often brings them in closer proximity to farming communities who are simultaneously trying to bring more land under cultivation in response to climate stressors. In Mali, for instance, periods of drought force pastoralists to move southwards earlier in search of pasture near the inner Niger Delta. This becomes a problem when animals arrive before crops have been harvested as the damaged crops and severely impact farmers' livelihoods. Such situations are likely to brew small-scale violent conflicts between farmers and herders. A phenomenon also seems to be unfolding elsewhere. For example, Nigeria's Benue state passed an anti-grazing law restricting entry of migrating herders in farmlands, thereby driving thousands of Fulanese pastoralists to relocate in the neighboring Nasawara state. This ignited long-standing tensions between Fulani herders and the eth ethnic farming community, resulting in intercommunal violence in 2018. And these are only two of the many and increasing examples of how climate is becoming a serious security concern across Africa and the developing world. We need to act quickly to migrate, to mitigate the impact of climate on peace and security, and we've had this during the discussions. Well-designed and tailored science should help policymakers in designing policies programs and investments that are sensitive to the climate security nexus and could break the cycle of climate and conflict for good. Decision support tools such as the Climate Security Observatory are critically needed and now more than ever. We believe that the Climate Security Observatory could contribute to, to conflict prevention and support regional, national, and local early warning systems help improving targeting of interventions during conflict events, ensure a climate security sensitive recovery and development trajectories in post-conflict settings. The observatory could have tremendous potential for adaptive peace building, which is informed by complexity, resilience, and local ownership, and emphasizes the need for variation and experimentation when designed, um, when designing peace building initiatives alongside rapid and continuous evaluation for interventions to remain responsive to continuously changing conditions. In line with this approach, 
the observatory encompasses several main innovations and technologies at the regional, national, and subnational level, namely um, complexity-informed impact pathways of the climate conflict nexus, real-time monitoring, and risk forecasting of the interaction of climate, conflict, and other insecurities using big data and machine learning approaches, and automated spatial and hotspot analysis to regularly identify highly insecure and fragile areas and their main drivers. The observatory could, could using these innovations, meaningfully contribute to the continuous process of evaluation and knowledge creation that characterize adaptive peace building. It is today one of the acting game-changing solutions proposed under Action, five, uh, under Action Track 5 within the United Nations Food System Summit that will directly complement the enabling solutions within the humanitarian development peace nexus. One of the enabling solutions is the food and peace facility that will contribute to preparedness and prevention, as well as response and recovery, thus strengthening the fundamentals of resilience. These solutions, however, do not accurately account for the role of the current climate crisis. Accessing real-time or almost real-time evidence on how the food, land, and water systems interact and react with climate variability and extremes, and how this could result in tensions and conflicts at national and subnational level will be fundamental to transform our food systems. And this is exactly what the observatory will do. However, to reach the last mile, links have to be made between the observatory and the relevant government departments. Thank you. All right. Thank you all for listening. Thank you again to CGIAR for partnering with the podcast for this series. And again, to participate in a future episode as part of this series, please visit climatesecurity.cgiar.org. We'll see you next time. Bye.